Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets. In this walk, Labouring City, we're exploring the east end of London, where much of the real work of the city was done, and which provided a home for the generations of immigrants who have given the city its dynamism. More recently, it's been a target for gentrifiers and developers. None of them have been entirely welcome. And you can still see the fault lines even close to the old city wall, where we'll be walking and where the transformation is almost complete. As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. And don't be surprised if you sometimes find your way blocked. Cities are always changing and building never stops. But it should be easy enough to find your way around the obstruction and get back on track. In this first episode, we're tracing the way London's riverside has changed. First as the city began to trade with the world, more recently as trade has been displaced by finance. Still, the mixed legacy of a working river is never too far away. We're starting the story next to a sundial, which you can find just outside Tower Hill tube station, overlooking the tower itself. It's a good place to see the difference between the world within the city of London and the world just outside the walls. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Tower Hill. We're standing on top of Tower Hill tube station, in fact. We've got a huge sundial just to our right. We've got a chunk of wall on our left. We've got the tower in front of us. It's a very good place to think about how the river has always connected London to the world. Anna Adams, a great poet, makes this clear in her poem, The River Goddess in the A to Z. That's an old book of maps. We used to use it to help us make our way around the city before we all started carrying the world in our pockets. Blue contours of a living limb, full curves suggesting hip and breast abutting on right-angled, ruled geometry of streets, are fragments of the undivided, river body, serpent soul of London, sliding past the ranks of buildings on both riverbanks. Reclined at ease, reflecting skies far deeper than her bed, inhaling tides, she knows in every molecule that she's an international, local thing. She makes her bed as she lies restlessly on gravel, and though British-born, she's an illegal immigrant. She's come by cloud from Amazonian and African and Asian waters. She has flown to both the poles, circled the world's wide waste, and is more cosmopolitan than the great town she jigsaws mirrors, joins. That was Anna Adams. 
The importance of the river to the city is also clear from the buildings around us. The oldest thing here is the church on our right. Not that building, it was rebuilt, but it's been here maybe from the 7th century on. It's where Samuel Pepys observed the fire burning away to the west in 1666. Then in front of us, of course, we've got the Tower of London. Behind us, if I flip all the way around, we've got a kind of low-slung neoclassical building. This is the Mariner's Guild, Trinity House. Early in the 16th century, they're authorized to regulate pilots on the river by the 17th century. They're responsible for all the lighthouses around the coast of England. And in the late 18th century, they build this new home. These days, they're no longer in charge of the city. Then to the left of Trinity House, we can see a big, towering neoclassical building. Actually, early 20th century building, built for the Port of London Authority, and it's them who start ruling the river, all the way from Richmond out in the west down to Margate, which is way out in the estuary in Kent. Massive building, a pompous building. It's imperial, it's monumental. Up top, you've got Father Thames gesturing to the river. He's got exportation on his left, produce on his right. But the Port of London Authority moved out in 1970. They're now down in Tilbury, way downstream, and that is a Four Seasons luxury hotel. And then between us and the Port of London Authority, we've got Trinity Square Garden, this little green space with a couple of war memorials to the Merchant Marine. The one in front, the one above ground, is by Edwin Lutyens. We've met him on previous walks. He built a lot of the city and the Cenotaph a little earlier than this. He also, of course, worked on New Delhi. He's just bringing that work to an end when he builds this war memorial. Then behind it, Sunken, a one for the war in 1939-45. On the far side of those war memorials, in fact, you have the site of the scaffold where many, many people were executed in the 16th and 17th century, not least Thomas Cromwell. So from the buildings, we know that the way that the river has worked over the centuries has changed. But we can also, standing here, begin to see the difference between the city of London and the neighbourhoods to its east. Behind us, the city of London, tall buildings springing up, going ever higher, citadels of capital. But if we look to the east, we can see that the buildings begin to shrink in size. We can't see the full diminution yet. We have to walk into the east end to get there. But there's a profound difference here. Already, back in 1600, Stowe, the earliest of the London historians, was complaining about the poor housing just outside the walls of the tower. He's talking about small and base tenements, filthy cottages. And in the next century, over the course of the 17th century, there is much more development, first on the mud flats, then further inland. By the end of the 17th century, the areas we're going to be walking into are full. There's also development north on the main roads. There are maybe 21 1,000 people outside the walls here in 1600. By the end of the century, then 91,000, a quadrupling over only 100 years. We're talking about noxious trades, as they were called, shipping, sugar refining, distilling, brewing, bringing the stuff in from the ships and turning them into other things. In time, there's manufacturing further inland. So already, by around 1750, there's a clear division between the East End, where we will be walking, and the West End. That is underlined with the arrival of the docks. That's at the beginning of the 19th century. But in that period, the East End is largely known for the working, industrious poor. And it's in the 19th century that that changes. By the second half of the 19th century, there's overcrowding, there's cholera, there are more immigrants flooding in. And there's a tipping point in the 1880s. 
the East End becomes known as the abyss. It becomes an object of curiosity, of concern, also of philanthropy. But even in the early 20th century, Carol Kapek, a Czech observer, is talking about swarms of people who, quote, no longer looked like an excess of human beings, but like a geological formation piled up from soot and dust. The East End remained poor for a long time, even after the war. The tower, which we see in front of us these days, is part of Tower Hamlets. That was a borough created in 1965. It was long one of the most deprived localities in the country. It still incorporates some of the most deprived neighbourhoods. But recently, the East End has been the object of capital. Capital has been flooding into the areas we're going to be walking through. The East End nearest to the city has become a place to invest and maybe temporarily to live. By 1998, private housing is nearly half of the stock of Tower Hamlets. So we need to start seeing what's happened. But to get there, we have to move outside the walls. So we can see this chunk of wall to our left, head for that, then curl under the road in front of us. You can hear it's very noisy. Head straight for the tower. We're going down the stairs now. We've got a chunk of wall over to our left. We've got a Roman bit on the bottom. We've got another medieval bit on top. The wall was rebuilt in the Civil War period, and we don't see any of that. This is one of the few surviving sections, but all the way around the city, you can see this. We're going to keep going under the road, though, heading directly towards the tower and coming out in front of the moat. So we've come out from under the road and we're looking straight at the tower. We're overlooking the moat. We're turning left and we're aiming for a glass-fronted building, which we can see on the other side of the roadway up there. So as we're walking now, we've got the tower on our right. It was, of course, built by William in 1066, or quickly thereafter, and more work later through the ages. And for the first bit of its existence, there are three stages to this. It's really a royal palace. It's got a working moat with a fishery. It includes the royal mint because the king has to control the coinage, which we still used to use. It also has a menagerie of wild animals, interestingly enough, with exotic beasts from overseas. But from around the early 16th century, so Henry VIII's time, the royals are moving west and the tower becomes something slightly different, an armory, a house of munition, it's called, and, quote, a place for the safekeeping of offenders rather than a palace royal, hence executions, hence the famous path through the traitor's gate on the way to your death. But then in the 19th century, after Waterloo, the tower loses its military functions, the army is modernizing, the tower doesn't really retain its use as a military base or as a munition store. And from the middle of the 19th century, it's restored. The Victorians are beginning to get enthusiastic about the past, and it becomes what it is today, a monument, a showcase for jewels, a museum, more or less, with people in costume to show the tourists. 
In front of us, we've got this moat. It's a very useful open space. At least it became a useful space when it was drained in the middle of the 19th century. It was beginning to stink really badly. It was used for livestock, a kind of farm and for growing vegetables in the late 19th century. In 1897, it was filled with soldiers for a jubilee. It was filled up famously in 2014 with ceramic poppies to commemorate World War One. And now in 2022, it's filled with wildflowers for another jubilee. As we come round the corner of the tower, we can see over to our right Tower Bridge, an iconic building the world over, but also the Victorians again doing what they do so well, going back to the past to make something new. The city is expanding. The bridge allows traffic to flow over the river, but also on the river because, of course, it lifts up to let them past. On top of all this function, including passenger lifts to the pedestrian walkway up top, you have Gothic architecture as if the whole thing is a medieval construct. We're going to keep going straight past the stairs to our right. You can see Tower Bridge Approach Subway on a sign to your right. Go through the tunnel underneath the road. We've come out from under the subway. We've got a glass-fronted building straight in front of us. We're turning right. We're walking between a red brick wall on our right and a glass-fronted building, Tower Bridge House, on our left. We've come out of that passageway. We're going to turn left. Immediately you can see some masts in front of you. Walk straight towards that marina ahead. So here we are at St. Catherine's Docks. We've got boats in front of us over to our right. We've got a concrete monstrosity. It's actually a hotel built to service the people coming in on the plains you can probably hear. And then buildings all around, including chain restaurants to our left. It's clear that much of what we're seeing is quite recent. And we need to peel back the layers, of course, to understand how it got to be this way. When we do, it gives us a beautiful little overture to the story of the docks in general, a sense of how work has changed here over the years, how communities have emerged, and how they have dissolved also over time. St. Catherine's doesn't start as a dock. It gets going in about 1148. It's actually a monastery. It's a medieval foundation. It's also got a direct affiliation to the crown, which means it survives the dissolution of the monasteries in the 1530s. And very quickly thereafter, it's surrounded by a maze of small streets where people are beginning to work and to live and to service the river, which is just in front of us. Fast forward to the early 19th century and you have a sequence of docks being built. This is the last of that early sequence. The older dock companies actually had a 21-year monopoly on things, which meant that when that expired, there was an opportunity for money to be made. And so they build St. Catherine's docks. To do that, they have to demolish a lot. St. Catherine's itself, the foundation moves. It moves to Regent's Park. It comes back to the East End in 1914. You can stay there today, a very calm space in the East End. They also knock down 1,250 houses on streets like Dark Entry, Cat's Hole, Shovel Alley, and they displace 11,300 people from this area to build the dock. 
The man who designs the dog, the man who oversees its creation, is Thomas Telford. He's from up north. He's already made his reputation building canals and roads. His name at the time was the Colossus of Roads, a nice early 19th century pun. And he designs the whole thing, including warehouses. We've already seen some of these in London in what were called the legal keys between Tower Bridge and London Bridge, where you had to land things up until this point. The innovation is that you can offload straight from the ship into the warehouse directly without depositing it on the wharf. This then gets taken up in Liverpool a little later. One more little wrinkle of the story of the creation of the docks is that, of course, you dig out a lot of earth. And another entrepreneur, Thomas Cubitt, uses that landfill to create Belgravia. Buckingham Palace is being rebuilt at the time. There's an opportunity to make some money by building houses for people to cluster close to the monarchy. And indeed, Belgravia is laid out on top of landfill taken from this dock. Even at the time it's built, though, the dock is never that competitive. You can see it's quite a small open space of water. Ships are already getting bigger. It does well. Trade is expanding enough to fill the docks. But it struggles really throughout its existence, and it finally closes in 1968. And from that time on, it's been redeveloped, leaving what we have today. There are a few original survivals here. Across the water, across the mast, we can see an old brick warehouse. This is now known as Ivory House, probably a misnomer. This is saved by Bridget Riley, among other artists, in the 1968, originally as Artist Studios. It's no longer that, of course. The hotel, the concrete pile to our right, is built in 1970-73. Architectural critics do not like this. They call it things like a huge overdevelopment of the space. Concrete panels, prefab, manufacture, but still very popular. It's a convenient tourist site. And then to our right, a kind of echo of the warehouses that were here before. This is part of the World Trade Center, of the London version. This is International House. We have Europe House, which was built a little later behind us. So what we've got here is a story of an area developing and then of the labour that had populated that area being displaced by capital. It's a story we will see again and again and again in the East End. In this first walk through the docks, it's the operation of capital in creating the docks and then transforming them in using them in different ways thereafter that is going to be most visible. But the other threads of the story of labour, of how people made their lives here, is always going to be visible too. To see that process more clearly, to get a grasp of the scale of the change that came in the 19th century, initially with the docks, then with the industry and the empire they enable, we're going to walk to our left towards that older brick warehouse, Ivory House, and past the chain restaurants you can see in the building. We've come to the end of the walkway. We're next to Ivory House on our right, and we can see that the dock is actually a dock of two parts. There are more boats ahead of us. We've got the old entry to the dock to our left. We've got two little elephants on the pillars announcing the entry to what is now Ivory House, although that is not authentic. And on the other side of the dock, we can see various layers of the development that came as the dock wound down and was redeveloped. The earliest, over in the far corner, we've got a dark brown pile of, in fact, social housing. This is South Quay Estate, built in the late 1970s. 
but not really there to service the people who are already living there. It has higher rent, there are conditions to occupancy, which means that the population changes over. Just in front of that, to the right, we've got what an architectural critic has called silly, folksy cottages, private houses. Those came along in 1982. And then on our left, yellow brick with appalling kind of boaty penthouses up top, condos built in the 1990s. We're turning right. We're going to have the water on our right. We've got Ivory House on our left. Aim for the clock tower. We're going under the passageway through the building. We've come out from the passageway. Ahead of us, we can see another little body of water. This is the entrance basin to both docks, and we're turning left. We've come past yet more restaurants. We've got a little footbridge over the entrance to the eastern dock, and on our left, we're Dickens in. We're going over the footbridge. So Dickens Inn on our left now looks as if it's old and in fact the interior of it is old. It's an old 1790s warehouse but it's only a third of that original structure and it wasn't originally here. It was faced, refaced to look even older and then moved here in the 1970s as part of the redevelopment of the dock for consumer use. We're leaving the Dickens Inn on our left. We're aiming for the gap between the cream building with the big pillars and the brick building, both on your right. We've turned the corner, we're between that brick building and the cream building. Ahead of us you can see some barriers, including an emergency access sign. You can see Muse Street, the entrance to these folksy cottages on our left. We're heading down to the roadway where you can see this tall, towering warehouse structure straight ahead. As we hit the main road, this is St. Catherine's Way. It leads into Wapping High Street, and we'll learn more about Wapping in a bit. You can see these warehouse structures in front of us. Not all of them are original. As we walk down the street on our right, we'll see Miller's Wharf, which is, in fact, a warehouse from 1860 to 70, converted in the late 1980s into offices and, I believe, also flats. On our right, warehouses and pretend warehouses. On our left, the back of the estate. We've already seen this started building in the 1930s, but before then it was one of London's biggest breweries. A 15th century brew house in the late 18th century, it became the Red Lion. It was then acquired by Hawes, also famous as Bankers. We're continuing straight down the main cobbled street. The cobbles continue, they curve left past Tower Bridge Wharf. As you come round the corner, you see ahead of yourself a blue building, a little bridge-like structure. We're aiming for that.
We're in front of the blue building now. We can see finally the river itself to our right. To our left, we've got a gateway next to an open basin. We're going to follow the path down, keeping the basin on our left. So here we are at Hermitage Basin. You can hear the fountain placed in the middle of it. We're next to a knot of rope cast in iron, a gesture to what was once here. On our right, we've got some pale cream housing. At the far end of the basin, we've got a kind of classical red brick structure. What's going on? This stop begins to give us a sense of the scale of the docks, although it's not clear now, of the imperial economy that made them possible and what's emerged since they went away. We're in Wapping. Wapping originally was marshland. It was once known as Wapping on the Woes or in the mud. It's finally drained and a river wall is built in around 1600 and that allows some stability to the land. It allows wharves and housing to be built along the wall. So again, Stowe, our antiquary, in 1600 or thereabouts, talks about, quote, a continual street or a filthy straight passage with alleys of small tenements or cottages built by sailors' vigilers. He's talking about pubs and he's talking about brothels. 200 years later come the docks. Here's the big picture. Already in 1700, London is handling about 80% of English imports, 69% of its exports, 86% of its re-exports, which is an important market in and of its own right. It's focusing on tobacco, on sugar, on silks, on spices, on the products coming in from formal and informal empire. But over the next century, over the course of the 18th century, trade triples again. So by the end of the 18th century, there is congestion. Everything that comes into London or goes out of London has to go through the legal keys. Again, this is the space between London Bridge and Tower Bridge. You have 1,800 vessels trying to get into a space which is designed for 500. It doesn't really work. Bristol at the time has three times as much space to land things. So there are delays, so there's pilfering. And so right at the end of the 18th century, the chartered companies, the companies with monopolies over trade with particular parts of the world, begin to build the docks. They build the docks as dedicated and above all secure places of trade. They're late to the game. Liverpool's been doing this since the 1710s. But at the end of the 18th century, you can do it in a new way. You can have steam engines to drain the ground, to mix the mortar. You have cast iron to put into the warehouses, which replace the wharves, the open areas you've landed goods on before. And then you have neoclassical architecture for the official houses that these things have to have. The first one is the West India Dock in 1802, dominating trade with the West Indies, therefore sugar, therefore rum, therefore slavery. On its foundation stone, it's to our west, it's where Canary Wharf now is, is written, quote, an undertaking which, under the favour of God, shall contribute stability, increase and ornament to British commerce. No mention of Africa or America, which makes this commerce possible. Next, where we now are, is London Docks. This comes in 1805. The London Dock Company gets a 21-year monopoly on ships carrying rice, tobacco, wine and brandy. And it's the expiration of that monopoly that actually incentivizes the people behind St. Catherine's Docks, which we've just seen. 
Eventually there are three big basins. That doesn't include the one where we're standing now. This is an entrance basin, which is built a little bit later in 1811, 1821. The wall surrounding the dock is in fact longer than the wall surrounding the city itself, which no longer exists in 1805. It surrounds 35 acres of water, 50 acres of warehousing, 7 acres of wine vaults. It has space for 500 ships. This one dock, in other words, has as much space as the whole of the previous legal keys. It can process 200,000 tonnes of goods. This basin where we now are is Hermitage Basin. It's added a little bit later, in 1811. It finishes in 1821. It's a second entrance into the docks because they're taking off. And it closes about 100 years later in 1909. The little classical building we're looking at at the far end of the dock is in fact built in 1913-14. to 14. It's called an impounding station. It's a pretty standard format. It's a way to maintain the water level. London Docks isn't the last of these. There is East India Docks in 1806. There's Surrey Docks on the South Bank, eventually a huge complex which starts up in 1807. By the early 19th century, therefore, the London Docks, all of the docks together, are a wonder of the world. A German prince in 1826 says, quote, Everything is on a colossal scale. There is sugar enough to sweeten the whole adjoining basin, rum enough to make half England drunk. For Charles Baudelaire, French, of course, in mid-century, they manifest, quote, the profound and complex poetry of a vast capital. By the same token, they create a huge demand for labour. Unloading and loading ships is still largely a manual occupation, but the labour is low-paid, it's casual, it's not permanent employment, it's highly seasonal depending on when these cargoes come in. By the middle of the century, Henry Mayhew, the first great chronicler of poverty in London, is talking about, quote, a sight to sadden the most callous, to see thousands of men struggling for one day's hire. And so you have labour disputes. There's a strike at the West India Dock in 1872 that gets the peace rate up to five pence an hour. By 1889, it's not enough. There's another strike. It goes up to sixpence an hour, an old sixpence. It's called the Docker's Tanner. But of course, the building continues. The ships are getting bigger. There are larger cargoes too. Industry and empire are building up. Goods being landed are shifting from the luxury goods which had characterized this early set of docks into staples, into bulkier things. There's a series of docks built in the late 19th century. Victoria in 1855, Millwall, Albert, eventually Tilbury, which is now where most of London's cargoes come in. And then eventually George V all the way in 1921. That's where London City Airport now exists. So by the early 1930s, the docks are employing 100,000 people. They're carrying 35 million tonnes of cargo a year within 700 acres. And so they become an object of curiosity. Virginia Woolf, no less, writing for Good Housekeeping magazine, which sounds unusual if you know her novels, points to the contrast between the glamour and the romance of the ships as they sail down the estuary and the desolation of the riverside that greets them. But she also notes the efficiency of the capital that is at work when the ships finally reach the docks. We look down into the heart of the ship that has been lured from its voyaging and tethered to the dry land. The passengers and their bags have disappeared. The sailors have gone too. Indefatigable cranes are now at work, dipping and swinging, swinging and dipping. Barrels, sacks, crates are being picked up and swung regularly on shore. 
Rhythmically, dexterously, with an order that has some aesthetic delight in it, barrel is laid by barrel, case by case, one behind another, one on top of another, one beside another, in endless array down the aisles and arcades of the immense, low-sealed, entirely plain and unornamented warehouses. Timber, iron, grain, wine, sugar, paper, tallow, fruit, whatever the ship has gathered from the plains, from the forests, from the pastures of the whole world is here, lifted from its hold and set in its right place. A thousand ships with a thousand cargoes are being unladen every week. And not only is each package of this vast and varied merchandise pick up and set down accurately, but each is weighed and opened, sampled and recorded, and again stitched up and laid in its place without haste or waste or hurry or confusion by a very few men in shirt sleeves who, working with the utmost organisation in the common interest, for buyers who will take their word and abide by their decision, are yet able to pause in their work and say to the casual visitor, would you like to see what sort of thing we sometimes find in sacks of cinnamon? Look at this snake. But within a few decades, everything had changed. The docks are hit hard by bombing. There's famous film of Winston Churchill coming around them, doing the thumbs up. After the war, though, they bounce back. They hit records. By 1956, 1,000 ships are coming through a week. But then hits the real crisis. The end of empire means that former colonies can now sell directly to richer markets. England in the post-war period is not wealthy. And then in the 60s come containers, the container shipping we know today. Already other ports in Europe have been modernised. They're better equipped to handle this new technology. London docks are not. East India is the first to close. That goes in 1967. London docks where we stand soon after. The last ones are Victoria, Albert and George. The 19th century closes down in 1981 and employment collapses from around 30,000 in the 1950s to 2,000 in 1981 when the docks are over. So already by the 1970s, things are pretty run down. Here in London Dock, there's a master plan for some low-rise social housing. It's patchily implemented. It doesn't really go anywhere. And it's not until the London Docklands Development Corporation is founded in 1981 that redevelopment really takes off. Here at London Docks, two of the three basins are filled in. The one surviving one is the one in the east. Most of the warehouses are torn down. The ornamental canal that we see behind us is built and from that point you see housing, 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 gentrification sweeping through the Docklands and continuing today. To see this up close we need to move on. We're turning our back on the basin and the fountain. We're leaving the stairs to our right. We're heading for the sign saying St. Catherine Docks and we're going to turn left. come out on the road we can see the canal on our right but we're leaving that behind we're following the road round we have some housing on our left and on our right beyond the canal taller buildings behind that a waitrose peeking out most of this is from the 1980s that's when the canal is built houses are built on both sides there's an office block ahead of us thomas moore square waitrose only arrives in 2015 keep following the road around
We've now got Waitrose on our left. We're crossing this pedestrian crossing and continuing up. We see Key 430 ahead of us. And when we get to the entrance to Key 430, you'll see it goes down. Key 430 is actually built at the end of the 80s. Again, private housing. But on its left, we have something very different under construction. Before there were these new condos, there was News International, Rupert Murdoch's outfit. When they break the printers' unions in the 1980s, eventually, they come here. They've started replacing the warehouses on North Quay, which is the raised area we can see ahead of us, in 1979. And then they shift production. They dismiss 6,000, and for 54 weeks there is the Battle of Wapping, one of the great labour disputes of the mid-80s of course, Margaret Thatcher. They're not here very long. Printing moves out from here 20 years later in 2004. The journalists shift across the road into Thomas More Square, the silver blocks in 2010. They're now dubbed by London Bridge, which means the site is empty. Their production facility has disappeared and now what we have is Berkeley Group, one of the big developers, putting in condos for city workers. In their description, quote, These are beautifully landscaped open spaces, a magnificent choreographed central water feature and 1,800 high-quality new homes. Residents have access to private gardens and exceptional facilities, including a private screening room, spa and gym suites, squash court, virtual golf course and 24-hour concierge. Prices from three-quarters of a million. We're continuing up the street to the busy main road ahead. So we pass the London Dock development on our right with advertising hoardings for a champagne route, a marketing suite, a coffee cart. We're at this very busy road now, which we can hear. We're crossing straight over to the Cream and Brown building and turning immediately right. in front of the white and cream building. We can see some warehousing on our right, more cranes. We're taking the first left. There's no road sign, but there is a big yellow sign saying no access for lorries. We're walking up what is actually called Ensign Street. On our right, we've got a low-slung set of buildings, a primary school, Shapler Primary School. We've got some condos on our left. We're aiming for the end of the street, and in fact, what is Docklands Light Railway, but we're going to turn right before then. We need to pause before we do, just to look at an important institution of the East End. We've paused now, just before the end of the street. We've got Docklands Light Railway still ahead of us, greenery still on our right. But we're looking at a white stucco and then brick building, which looks a bit odd. It looks as if it has one wing missing, and indeed it does. What this is, is the Brunswick Maritime Establishment or at least it was. It was built on the site of a collapsed theatre in the 1830s, and it's one of the earliest seamen's missions. 
It's organized by a midshipman turned Baptist minister. He's one of the founders of the Port of London Society for Promoting Religion Among Merchant Seamen. Other institutions like this follow further east. By the early 19th century, in other words, you've got the docks coming into operation. You've got sailors and they are bereft, at least according to these ministers in the Sea of Faith. There's room in this one building for 500 men in each wing. Only one of them survives. They're stacked in double tiers of cabins. In the central block, you have a registry, a savings bank, a dining hall, reading rooms. The establishment also employs agents to go down to the busy road we've just left, Ratcliffe Highway, to encourage sailors to avoid the lodging houses that were there and were often fronts for prostitution, so their wages would have disappeared. The south wing is demolished in 1893 and, of course, the whole thing is converted to flats in 1999. Just after the establishment, just after the greenery, we're turning right down Grace's Alley, a diagonal alley which will take us into a square. As we walk down this alley, we've got a kind of brownish-yellow wall on our right. We've got cream, brick, new-build housing on our left. And then on our left, we've got something very different. We've got a distressed front with plaster peeling away, some of it coloured in red and ochre, patched in cream. We've got red shutters, red doors. We've got an incredible archway with a massive lantern in front, swags of fruit on either side. And when we get there, we see that this is Wilton's. It was originally a pub, and then it became a concert hall, and then finally a music hall in the middle of the 19th century, shortly after the Brunswick Maritime Establishment gets going. It's described by one architectural historian as, quote, an extravagant interior behind a workmanlike front of four early 19th century properties knocked together. Music halls were big business in the East End in the late 19th century, but this one actually becomes a Wesleyan Methodist mission hall in 1888, the secular and the sacred competing for the attentions of the people passing through. By the end of the 20th century, it's slated for demolition. It's almost knocked down. It's saved by a poet laureate, John Betchman, and others who come together to save London's past. And it remains a wonderful atmospheric space, whether you're filming a movie like Interview with a Vampire or singing Polyphony. As we come out of the end of Grace's Alley, we see that we come onto what looks like a square and indeed is. We're going to pass straight on. On our right, we have St. Paul's Primary School, 1869 to 70, separate entrances for girls and boys. You don't want them to mix. We're going to keep going down past St. Paul's, leaving it on our right, aiming for the tower blocks we can see in front of us. We've walked straight towards the tower block. We're not going to go up the step towards it. We're turning right, heading down past a little barrier, and then we're going to turn left into the park. So here we are in the park. We've actually sat down. We're taking a bit of a rest right now. We're looking at the three tower blocks in front of us. Over to our left, we've got St. Paul's Primary School, which we just passed. 
behind us we can see the London dock development going up, condos for the well healed, and we can hear the highway. What's happened? We're in the middle of what was once a quite ritzy development back in the day. Before the docks, in the East End, there was some early development in the 17th century. Two squares, well close square, which we've just walked through. That's where St Paul's Primary School is. And Prince's Square, more or less where we're sitting now. They're laid out in 1678. They have those alleys leading away from the corners. The whole thing is developed piecemeal. The people developing it want profit. They're only going to build when they can sell. And it's developed piecemeal as new communities come into London. In Wellclose Square, originally, there's a Danish church built in the centre of Wellclose Square, where St Paul's Primary School now is. That church was built in 1696. It lasts until 1870. Here in Prince's Square, a few years later, there's a Swedish church. You've also got Baltic timber merchants here. You've got German sugar refiners. There's an increasing supply from the Americas, from the Caribbean. There's increasing demand for sugar. We're drinking coffee and tea, which are too bitter for English taste. By the late 19th century, though, this is largely a Jewish community. Still, though, until the early 20th century, it is... Wellclose Square, the most desirable address in the East End. It's hit hard by bombing, though. Some early stuff still survives, which we've just seen. And so then, in the 60s, as post-war social housing begins to get built up, this happens. This is the brutalist St George's estate. It takes its name from a church we'll see in a moment, and it erases what's left of Prince's Square. It's mixed development, which was the fashion at the time. That means you have high tower blocks, you have mid-rise, and you have low-rise as well. Almost immediately, that kind of thing is out of favour. At the end of the 60s, one of the tower blocks, not one of these, collapses famously and fashion moves on. We saw, coming up to the tower block, there are garages below. It's quite functional, but it's not a place to live. Here's Ian Nan, a wonderful architectural critic, in 1966, the year I happened to be born, condemning what is going on. Of all the things done to London in this century, the soft-spoken, this-is-good-for-you castration of the East End is the saddest. Embedded in Cable Street are the hopeless fragments of two once-splendid squares, Wellclose and Swedenborg, built for the shipmasters of Wapping when London began to move east. Those who could care about the buildings don't care about the people. Those who care about the people regard the decrepit buildings rather as John Knox regarded women. Unforgivable blindness. Nobody cares enough, and the whole place will soon be a memory. The story of these two squares and what's replaced them is part of a bigger story, really about the condescension of those further west with more power, with more money, to the East End. To see this, we need to start walking. We need to walk to the church which anchors this neighbourhood and gives it its name, St George's, and it provides a way also to connect this walk to the next one. We're following the path as it curves round to the right, back towards the highway, which we can hear rumbling in the distance. And we're going to walk along the highway for a few more steps. Um, 
So we're making our way out of this park, actually called Swedenborg Gardens, a sign on our left. We're leaving a Texaco petrol station to our right. We're heading towards an exit across the little road there. We can see the Stranger's Rest Evangelical Church, another 19th century attempt to make sailors think the right thing. We're turning right now as we come to the end of the park in front of the Stranger's Rest and then we're turning left on the busy main road. At the traffic light, we're turning left on Cannon Street Road. Just a short way up Cannon Street Road, we're now turning right into a church courtyard, which we can see appearing in front of us. We've come out from under the trees, we can see this massive, awe-inspiring spire in front of us. If the doors are open, you can see a little glass box inside the church itself. This is St George's in the East. Originally, St George's is a parish. It's largely rural, there's a small little settlement here. As trade gets going, in the early 18th century, it begins to get built up. There's cheap housing for sailors. There's cheap housing for Irish immigrants, a lot of whom are coming over even before the potato famine, which we know about in the 19th century. So there's a problem. The people who are coming to London don't necessarily believe the right thing. Parliament passed an act to build 50 new churches, largely in the East End, to ensure that the established religion takes root among this new population. We've already seen one of these churches in an earlier walk, right in the middle of London. And again, that church is built by the man who builds this one, Nicholas Hawksmoor. Only 12 of the 50 churches are in fact built, six of them by Hawksmoor, one of Christopher Wren's great pupils who experiments with the tradition in the way that you can see, in this awe-inspiring manner. And indeed, the churches are meant to inspire awe, to terrify, if you like, the new immigrants into the right faith. It doesn't solve the problems, though. Putting up a church rarely does. There are anti-Irish riots in this neighbourhood in the 1730s. The locals come out against the Chinese Lascars, the Chinese who serve on the ships, in 1813. Still, though, in 1820, this neighbourhood is at the height of its prosperity. Well-close princes swear are still going well. There are wealthy merchants, there are traders in the parish. But then... By the middle of the century again, the docks are really getting into gear. Unskilled labour is beginning to flock here to service the docks just to the south. There is crowding, there is cholera in 1849, 55, 66. There are riots again in 59 and 60. By that point, this church itself is becoming known as, quote, the zoo and horror and coconut shy of London. Then, of course, there's East European Jewish immigration in the late 19th century. There are attempts to improve the situation. The churchyard gets turned into a public garden in 1886. The rector is public-spirited. The mortuary, which is on the road we've just left behind, is turned into a natural history museum in 1904, an interesting change of use. Still, though, in the early 20th century, things are bad, and then, of course, comes the war. The church itself is hit, which means that the interior is destroyed, not the exterior walls, which remain as they are, 
So what you now have is a church built inside a church, a glass box for the remaining congregation, which is small. This is a moment to pause the podcast, go and look inside and maybe think a little about how faith has evolved over the years. Faith is a story we'll need to pick up because not everybody who lives here, of course, believes the same thing. But to set the stage for that story, we need to move on a little bit. We've got one more stop to go. It's very close by. We're curving round to the right of the church and out into what is now a public garden, which used to be the churchyard. So we come to the back of the church. We're in the churchyard. We've got tombstones lined up on the wall on our right. We're heading past the big monument in the middle of the park, diagonally out, and then turning left onto the road. We're bearing left in the churchyard now, and ahead of us we can see a wall covered in paint. That's where we're going to stop. We've stopped in front of this extraordinary mural. Just to our left is Cable Street. It's not the only Cable Street in London. There are initially quite a few. They're named after the length of a ship's cable. But the building we're looking at behind the mural is the Town Hall. It was built in 1860. It's polite, civic architecture. If you go around the front, you'll see the classical references. There's actually a scheme in 1919 to replace this whole area with a kind of Beaux-Arts design, a grand boulevard and so on. It doesn't go anywhere. Instead, come the 1930s, there's a battle. The world is an interesting place in the 1930s. Fascism is on the rise, not only in Germany, not only in Italy, but indeed among the British establishment. And so Oswald Mosley founds the British Union of Fascists. He decides that there should be a march of his black shirts through the largely Jewish East End to tell them what's what with about 2,000 to 5,000 of his supporters. It's scheduled for the 4th of October 1936, and they're going to start from Tower Hill, where we started our walk today. When they get here, when they start marching, they're opposed by around 100,000 or more anti-fascist demonstrators. The numbers are tricky. There are clashes throughout the day. The main confrontation is to our north. That's on Whitechapel High Street. But there are also barricades erected here on Cable Street to ensure that the fascists can't pass. Or at least... That's how the story is normally told. It's often held up as a moment of East End solidarity among the diverse communities. Immigrant diversity overcoming establishment fascism. The reality, of course, is a little bit more complicated. Before the march even gets going, the Jewish People's Council had organised a petition to get it banned. It had 100,000 signatures on that petition, giving you a sense of the population here in the East End. The Home Secretary, however, denies the request... Oswald Mosley is part of the establishment, the Home Secretary is part of the establishment, free speech should be protected, at least for some people. And in fact, the main casualties during the day come in clashes between the police, who are trying to clear the barricades, and 73 get injured in that process, and then the anti-fascist demonstrators, 80 of them, are arrested. 
the march actually boosts fascism and anti-Semitism, including and maybe especially in the East End. This is where the greatest support for the fascist movement congregates. In the 1937 elections for the London County Council, the British Union of Fascists gets somewhere around 20% in many of the wards in the East End. Luckily, none of them are elected. One communist is, which provides hope for some Fast forward to the 1970s. The East End is having a hard time. And so an artist, Dave Binnington, decides that painting this mural might be a way of improving things, at least encouraging the neighbourhood to think about its history, to be proud of its heritage. He collaborates with several others and produces what you see in front of you. It's inspired by social realist artists like the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera. It's a kind of social realist portrayal of the Battle of Cable Street. It focuses on the confrontation between the protesters and the police. We see the faces of the protesters. Largely, we don't see the faces of the police who are facing away from us or hidden. On the right, Hitler is in his underwear tumbling down. The thing to note, perhaps, though, behind a banner on our left, the banner says, Mosley shall not pass. The faces we see are in fact Bangladeshi immigrants. The artists have incorporated the more recent waves of immigration to the neighbourhood. And Bangladeshi immigrants are in fact congregated in various areas of the East End, but including Cannon Street Road just in front of the church, which we've left. That's not the end of the story, though. It never is. In 1982, while the artists are working on the mural, it's daubed with racist slogans. Binnington gets discouraged, abandons the project, his collaborators finish the job. Ten years later, though, the fascists are back. The British National Party wins a council seat not that far away from here in Millwall, and the supporters paint bomb the mural yet again. It's restored again. In 2011, it has to be restored again. And at that point, you begin to see some initiatives coming together around the mural to bring the neighbourhood together. Bengali students visit. Somali students, the most recent wave of immigrants to the East End, visit. In 2015, Jewish and Muslim schools in the neighbourhood collaborate on a project about the mural. There is maybe hope despite it all. Where there's work to be done, there will be migration. Where there are migrants, they will be doing the hard work. And where there are migrants working, there will be pushback. Also, occasionally, there will be reach out. We'll pick these stories up in our next walk, which begins on Whitechapel Road in front of Whitechapel Station. It's a six-minute ride on the overground. If you go out to Cable Street, turn right, you'll see Shadwell right ahead. You can jump on the train there. Or a 20-minute walk. Just keep heading north. We'll meet you there. Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofronievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>